Welcome to the Archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Racism, as a part of the American religious culture, arguably can be traced to the religious concepts of some of the earliest European settlers in North America. Professor Paul R. Griffin explores these roots of racism in his book, Seeds of Racism in the Soul of America, in which he links the concepts in the Puritan belief system to long-lasting racist effects. He asserts that racism is itself a religion in the United States and is closely related to American Christianity. He claims that efforts to erase racism have failed because they have concentrated on its visible manifestations rather than its ideological character. Trained as a historian, Professor Griffin holds a Ph.D. in American Religious History from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and teaches at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. I spoke with Professor Paul Griffin in March of 2001 from his home in Dayton, Ohio, and asked him to describe the sources he used in developing his book, Seeds of Racism in the Soul of America. racism to uh, interpret uh, the, uh, the situation with American racism, I'm not claiming to have really broken any new ground in terms of the kinds of sources that I used. I use the same old sources that scholars have been using uh, over the centuries, but I, trying to give a balanced account, uh, showed some of these heroes for what they were, and that was to be racist, and that's unfortunate. Well, can you give us some specifics to identify the racist content? For example, with Cotton Mather, uh, he speaks about Africans. And by the way, uh, Cotton Mather was a slaveholder um, up in uh, Massachusetts. And uh, a very prominent uh, theologian, Puritan theologian, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And uh, on one occasion, Mather spoke about uh, Africans and he referred to them as the blackest, foulest, and most sinful creatures on earth. And that's uh, directly from uh, the uh, words of Mather. Well, this is his interpretation, but does he connect it to the gospel or to uh, any particular theological writing? Oh, yeah. Uh, Mather, like other Puritans of his era, uh, when it came to uh, uh, black people, uh, connected uh, their comments to their uh, assertion, their belief, that uh, in this case, God was the one who had made black people the most uh, brutish and sinful people on earth. So uh, what some Puritans did was to simply draw on the Bible and draw on Christian history and, uh, to be sure, uh, twist it so that they could come up with what I call in Seeds of Racism a, a, uh, a theology of race through which or by which uh, they could justify their own racism by blaming God for it. 
as I understand it in your book, Seeds of Racism, uh, you bring that forward, that justification forward from the Puritan time to the present time. Can you tell us how that um, works, what that analysis is? Right. What I try to do in Seeds is to show how these ideas of race that were sown by the Puritans have come down to us, to haunt us, to be sure, today. Let me say, let me back up if I may. My thesis uh, differs from the traditional uh, understanding of how slavery and racism began in this country. Uh, until now, historians have delighted in telling us that, that uh, we're blaming the South. They, they said that slavery and racism, both of these evils began in the South among crude and unlettered plantation owners. Uh, that isn't very accurate. Matter of fact, it's a falsification of history that has stood for centuries. And I'm appalled that my historian friends would do that, but they, they have blamed the South for the origins of both slavery and racism. As early as 1638, the governor of uh, the Connecticut uh, colony, Theophilus Eaton, was going around bragging that he had been holding some Africans in slavery and he would continue to do so or forever at his pleasure, in the quote. And uh, it is reported that, that uh, Eaton made these comments in 1638. That was well over 100 years before slavery uh, became established anywhere in the South. But what I have done in Seeds is to show how these bad ideas have come down uh, over the centuries. Uh, uh, for example, during the uh, post-Civil War years, uh, the arguments made by the Puritans, who, by the way, drew on three, four theological ideas, Christian teachings, to uh, justify their racism. And these teachings were the doctrines of sin, predestination, creation, and covenant. And I give you an example of how they argued about sin with Mather, but in terms of predestination, they simply said that it was God who predestined blacks to forever be under the footstool of whites. And in terms of the... Uh, uh, doctrine of creation, they twisted that to argue that when God created uh, humanity, God created different races, with the white race on top, the Asian race next, and then uh, on the bottom was the black race, that God had created black people last. In terms of the notion of covenant, the Puritans argued that they had come here under a divine mandate from God to make America God's new uh, city set up on the hill, and I'm sure you've seen these words somewhere. Uh, uh, the New Jerusalem, uh, America's God's New Holy Land. And they argued that because God had singled them out as white people, that the Native Americans, as well as Africans, were outside of God's holy covenant. Therefore, they had to be either killed off or enslaved. And that's how they justified their slavery. But anyway... Uh, Coming on down through the 19th century, uh, the Reconstruction era, when slavery, slavery dealt what should have been a death blow to racism in America because it undermined the old Puritan notion of black inferiority. You know, that blacks were an inferior species that could not survive unless they were enslaved. The Civil War exploded that notion. But the idea remained, and it was picked up by none other than physicians and scientists. And people like uh, uh, Van Evere, a medical doctor from New York, 
city uh, shortly after the Civil War, went south and wrote a book uh, in which he uh, uh, argued that black people not only had been created by God inferior, but black people had been created to be uh, disease curious. Uh, and all of the bad diseases of that time uh, he attributed to uh, uh, black people and insisted that the only hope in America was for uh, all Africans or black-skinned people to be removed back to Africa. What happened to his book and to his ideas? Well, it received quite a bit of currency throughout the late 19th century and uh, part of this, the 20th century. Um, and he wasn't the only one. A guy by the name of Carroll uh, wrote a book, The Negro uh, in the Image of the Negro, a Beast, or in the Image of God. And if we were to go through all the literature of that period, we'd find that, uh, again, physicians, scientists, uh, intellectuals of all sorts were going around picking up on these old Puritans' ideas and giving them their own new twist to continue the argument about black inferiority. Do you find that that still exists in your research and your work now? Oh, yes. I mean, a classic example of it occurred in, what was it, 1994, when uh, uh, Murray and Hernstein uh, wrote their uh, little book in which they, picking up on what the Puritans have said, had said and what people like uh, Dr. Van Every had said, a medical physician, uh, and questioned blacks, black people's IQ. You know, the bell curve came yes. out in 1994. Yes. So, yeah, we see that today. Uh, but, you know, that's a, that's a giant example of it. But we see it in almost, you know, every instant because these ideas, these seeds, as I call them in my book, that were first sown by the Puritans are still spreading all across America. And mm. interestingly enough, although we like to blame hardcore racists or uh, uh, the right-wing conservatives, I show in seeds that these ideas also infect the minds of our liberal white friends. This archive edition of Radio Curious was recorded in February 2001. Our guest is Professor Paul R. Griffin, the director of the African and African American Studies Program at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. Dr. Griffin is the author of Seeds of Racism in the Soul of America, this is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Professor Griffin, can you explain how you see racism now in uh, the year 2001? Well, yes. It's taken on cunning new faces. So that today, uh, it's guised under a whole lot of terms, and, uh, such as, uh, for example, let me just be straightforward. Uh, we, we hear a lot today about diversity and uh, multiculturalism. Uh, I show in seeds that uh, these are very, very uh, cunning terms as it relates to uh, American racism and the role that liberal white, some white liberals play in perpetuating uh, the old ideas persona by the Puritans. My re research has shown that in many instances today, uh, when we talk about diversity or we talk about multiculturalism, we find that the proponents of these two ideas are simply saying what we want to do is affirm black culture. You know, we think that 
the culture of black people, their heritage, then we think that that's important. We ought to lift it up and we ought to celebrate it. And that's good. But it's also a cunning way of continuing a racist tradition, the racist tradition of the Puritans. Because what it allows many to do is to not take that additional step of affirming black humanity. And let me give you an example of how it played out. During the 1960s, uh, many whites joined hands with Martin Luther King and other black civil rights leaders, uh, marching up and down the streets, and some even sacrificed their lives, arguing that black people had the right to work in public places, that they had a right to ride on uh, public transportation, they had a right to live where they wanted to live and were able to live. Now, the problem with that, that only emphasized desegregation. These whites were only willing to support desegregation of institutions. They were not willing to take that additional step and integrate the society, whereby they would be forced to admit and to recognize black humanity. Has King's dream of a colorblind society, for example, been realized? No. Here, some 30 years later, if King were alive today, he would still have to give that same speech in which he proclaimed, I have a dream that someday all of God's children, black, white, red, and yellow, uh, will, will, will get together and they will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their heart. We, 30 years after the Civil Rights Movement, are still wrestling with this problem of what to do with black folk. And the liberals suggest that we just continue to emphasize desegregation or multiculturalism or diversity so that they don't have to take that additional step of saying, uh, for example, Paul Griffin, you're a human being just like I am. No, not different from and not less than. We are equal. Is there more that needs to be done than saying uh, to a black person that you're human just like a white person? Well, yeah. <laughs> We need to erase these ideas of the Puritans from our minds. How is that done? What needs to be said that would be successful in erasing those ideas? Well, it's simple, but it's so difficult. Look, it's a bad idea. Racism is nothing but a bad idea. In this case, as I argue, it's a bad theological idea, okay? Now, we have gotten rid of other bad ideas. Look at the bad ideas we had about child rearing, for example. It used to be that we believed, as a society, American society, that we should not spare the rod. That, you know, if you spared the rod, you spoiled a child. So, you know, it used to be that the parents would quickly pull out the belt or a switch, as, I, as my parents used to do, and, you know, they'd give you lashings, you know. Or if you went to school and you did something wrong, they'd bring out the paddle. We don't do that anymore, do we? I mean, if you do that today, in most states, uh, you can be arrested, you know, for child abuse. We get rid of that bad idea. We get rid of the bad ideas that we had about gender. You know, it used to be that men uh, could stand at the water cooler and whistle as uh, a female went past. Or, you know, use derogatory language as she walked past. That is not acceptable anymore, that idea you know, that women are supposed to be subservient to men. That's not accepted anywhere anymore. 
well, I don't want to say it's not accepted anywhere. There's still some who are bigoted uh, as uh, relates to uh, gender issues. But but we've gotten rid of bad ideas before. We could easily, if we wanted to, get rid of the bad ideas of race. But in the final analysis, there are those, including some of my liberal friends, who brought, who profit from keeping the races apart. Can you explain what you mean by that? As long, yes, as long as we can keep the white masses and the black masses going at each other, those who are in power don't have to worry about sharing that power. That happened, for example, uh, back in the uh, the uh, uh, post-Civil War decade, decades when Tom Watson, an agrarian rebel, rebel as he was known, tried to unite the poor whites and the poor blacks into some kind of coalition that could go against the establishment. And Watson, at least early on in his career, tried to teach both black and white uh, that, you know, if you unite, then you can overthrow those few elites who are in control of all the wealth in this country and who use the two races, poor classes, pit pit them against each other so that they can continue to profit from their labors. That same kind of thing happens today. I'd like to ask you about uh, your interpretation of the role of the civil rights movement in um, dealing with these issues. But first, I want to remind our listeners that this week we're talking with Professor Paul Griffin, the author of a recent book entitled Seeds of Racism in the Soul of America. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Professor Griffin what is your feeling about what the civil rights movement did? It obviously made some change. I would say that the civil rights movement made a whole lot of change. I wouldn't, would not be talking to you this evening were it not for the civil rights movement. So, again, uh, in terms of desegregation and other kinds of discrim- discriminatory practices, the civil rights movements, uh, whether it was King or Malcolm X or whoever, had tremendous impact. They, it it, it revolutionized, revolutionized America. It changed America. You know, America couldn't continue to do business as it had been doing of discriminating against black people. And that was very, very significant and very, very important. My question is, what happened? Why didn't we go farther than just desegregating institutions? And your answer to that question is what? The answer is that America's mind is so infected with these bad seeds of racism that here we are in 2001 still talking about the racial problem in America. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to lift it up as our number one problem. Well, you talk in your book about seeds of racism as an epidemic, which is contagious and insidious. Can you describe that? Yes. The idea of race, the idea of black inferiority, touches the mind, I argue, of most, if not every American. So that even little kids, white children, who have never had any physical contact with black people, 
they live in the suburbs or they live in the uh, rural areas where where some of them don't even see them on, on, on uh, don't see black people uh, don't even see them on television, but they certainly know the N word. Now, how do we account for that? Their parents know the N word. The parents have said it in front of those children, and it's a bad idea. And bad ideas like to reside in the human mind for some reason or other. Some people would call it sin. What do you call it? When I waxed theological, I said it, racism, American racism, is a sin. And there is a way of getting rid of that sin. And it's the same way we get rid of any other sin, and that is by purging our hearts and minds of it. And that's what I say makes getting rid of racism so simple. If we wanted to do it, what would happen if on any given Sunday, or say um, uh, uh, four Sundays straight, if every minister in every church in America would get up and preach and, and, and tell his or her congregation, look it, we have sinned. We have sinned against our black brothers and sisters, and I'm asking you to repent of those sins this morning and recognize them as human beings, affirm them as human beings, what a effect would that have? And we heard Dr. King when King said that the churches are the most segregated institutions in America. We all remember that. But we forget that King said something else. At the same time, he was uttering those words about the church being the most segregated institution in America. King was also saying, look it, the church is the only power that can end racism because it is the church and only the church that can get back to the ideational foundations of American racism. And what King was talking about, he never, uh, he didn't live long enough or else he didn't have the time, but he never got back to telling us what those ideational roots are. I have told us that those ideational roots trace back to the Puritans and not to some crude, unlettered, uneducated southern plantation owner. Racism in America has been the product the primary product of intellectuals, not unlettered people, not the white masses. We, the white masses have been led to hate black folk by their intelligent colleagues, men and women who know better. But again, for, uh, for reasons of power and prestige, they delight in sowing these bad ideas of black inferiority, to incite the masses to rise up and con continue to make race an issue, while they, at the same time, are laughing all the way to the bank or to the stock market. Can you uh, identify how that's currently being done? Well, yeah, uh, look at I know he's been beaten on, and, and we, we, we need to stop beating on Clinton, but but, 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 but let me use him as an example. Clinton called for, a couple years ago, a national dialogue on race. And he brought together a group of people, including some of my scholarly friends, to sit down and talk about race in America. We haven't heard any more about that, 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 uh, that dialogue, have we? No. And... More important than that, Clinton himself, a, a liberal, could not bring himself to ask America, as president, 
to apologize for slavery. Because that would have been undermining the economic powers that be. The those in power, while they were willing to go along with having some kind of dialogue on race, because they know what was, knew what was going to be the end of it, the end result was nothing. It's going to be, you know, be the same old status quo. You know, people meet, sit down and talk, have some scholar there like uh, John Hope Franklin leading it, and at the end, nothing's going to happen. But if Clinton had asked America to apologize, the fear was that the next step would be some kind of reparation to black America, which Randall Robinson and others are now calling for. That ain't going to happen. Again, the powers that be don't want it to happen. You know, we rightfully paid reparations to the Japanese-Americans, you know, that, that we treated as less than human. Uh, why not with black Americans? Well, Professor Paul Griffin, I'd like to invite you to join us again here on Radio Curious, but we've come to the end of our time, and I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately before we close. Yes, uh, and I haven't read a book here in the last two months, and that's a shame, but the last book I read was back in last September, and it was a book I had uh, read before, but I reread it, and it was by Ellis Coase called The... uh, Rage of the Privileged Class, in which uh, Coase looked at and tried to answer the question, why is it that uh, blacks, black intellectuals, blacks who are successful, are so filled with rage? And he concluded that it's racism and the lingering effects of, of slavery and all that that makes the black intellectuals so furious. And as I reflect on my own work and compare it with uh, Coase's thesis, I, I guess in, 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 in Seeds of Racism, there are moments when I, when I, when I am very passionate uh, instead of being a historian. And, and one of the things that I was taught uh, when I was uh, being trained as a historian or trained to become a historian was that you had to separate your feelings from your writings. But I found that as I was writing Seeds, I couldn't always do that. And I finally concluded, maybe that's good, because we need to have the power in the word, in seeds of racism, in the hopes that America will somehow say, you know, we've gone far enough with this stuff. It's time that we do repent of our sin, convert ourselves, and sin no more as it relates to uh, the way that we treat our black brothers and sisters. Professor Paul Griffin, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you very much for having me. In this 2001 archive edition of Radio Curious, we visited with Professor Paul R. Griffin, the director of the African and African American Studies Program at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. He's the author of Seeds of Racism in the Soul of America. The book Professor Griffin recommends is The Rage of the Privileged Class by Ellis Coes. This program was recorded in February 2001. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. 
And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.